Welcome to the What We Lost podcast. It wasn't just politicians and pundits looking to benefit from the CSSG controversy. A journalist and former We Charity donor decided to step into the fray for his 15 seconds. And more disturbingly, a massive payout, more than $40 million from the children's charity for his silence. We Charity was proud of its work in developing countries and had nothing to hide. Beneficiaries of their work and forensic auditors concurred, but those voices were ignored by the media for more salacious headlines. I'm Martin Luther King III, and this is the What We Lost podcast. This is the real story behind the headlines. An International Affair As the dust started to settle on the CSSG, the media's attention shifted to Wee's international work. I can't say the pivot was surprising. There was insatiable demand for commentary on Wee, and critics of the organization and the Kilbergers were bound to leave no stone unturned. A political scandal at home naturally caused some people to question whether the charity's work abroad was as impactful as the fundraising materials suggested. Critics of development work generally, there are many, for example, who believe all foreign aid is an extension of colonialism, were sure to raise questions regarding the merits of encouraging foreigners to donate to clean water campaigns or volunteer in the developing world. For those people, We Charity was an obvious poster child for such debate. All this was expected and understandable. But what happened next blew my mind. Very quickly, the charity's handling of a case of employee misconduct in Kenya morphed into front-page news in Canada that hinted an international corruption. Then came a non-stop series of wow claims, ranging from corporal punishment to mismanagement of projects to deception of donors. It was an all-out attack with journalists at highly influential outlets like Bloomberg and the CBC leading the charge and politicians jumping on the bandwagon. Some of the most negative reporting relied heavily on accusations from a former donor whose behavior was dubious, to put it very mildly. In this chapter and the next, I will lay out the facts and let you be the judge. But in my view, the conduct of these journalists was highly suspect and should give every Canadian pause. They assailed the transparency and honor of the charity using tactics that were anything but transparent or honorable. Did they create the story and then report on it? Have they been truthful about what happened behind the scenes? Are tales of donor deception by We Charity based on deception of donors by the storyteller? I was not alone in my reaction. This latest onslaught provoked many donors and educators who had previously watched in silence as the We Charity scandal unfolded 
to find their voices and say enough. It was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. Those who had devoted their time, money, and reputations to work with We Charity in the international development sphere, as well as those who had tried to speak up but were ignored, now refused to stay on mute. From background to front page. The fracas over We's international programs began in the summer of 2020. Ironically, it was rooted in a situation that was actually a remarkable profile and courage on the part of the WE executive team, and in particular co-founder Mark Kilberger. In 2017, a financial spot check of Kenyan operations by WE Charity in Canada revealed that the former director of the Kenyan team, Peter Ruhu, had misappropriated funds and falsified financial records. Alarm bells went off. A special committee of the charity's board was formed to oversee the matter, and board members Michelle Douglas and Eric Morrison traveled to Kenya to personally help sort out the mess. We Charity engaged external experts to lead an investigation, including fraud specialist Compal and global accounting firm Deloitte. They examined financial and digital records and interviewed staff. The Kenyan authorities were engaged, including the local police and the charity informed the Canadian High Commissioner. The Kenyan police enlisted Mark and other senior WE staff to help with the investigation and to obtain evidence of Ruhu's crimes by recording phone conversations with him. As proof that no good deed goes unpunished, these calls were later broadcast by Canada Land in an attempt to suggest that Mark himself was involved in a corrupt plot. Ruhu initially accepted responsibility and agreed to repay the misappropriated funds. But as the pressure to make restitution mounted, he changed his mind and told Kenyan police that Mark and a group of others, we employees, contractors, and their lawyers, had kidnapped him and forced him to confess at gunpoint. Ruhu was subsequently charged with fouling a false police report. He pleaded guilty, repaid the funds, signed a written confession, and was ordered to pay a fine and serve a one-year prison term. With this situation unfolding, Mark stayed in Kenya for months without seeing his family. To leave risked the possibility that Ruhu would escape justice and a criminal case would never be brought. Mark's life was repeatedly threatened when I visited Kenya in July 2018. I had to meet with him at a secret location because he was being moved every few days so that his whereabouts would remain unknown. It was apparent that he was not sleeping. He looked exhausted and visibly shaken. He had also become aware that Ruhu's wife, herself an employee of the charity at the time, and children were at risk of domestic violence. Mark had promised that he would help them relocate to safety in Canada. 
He would not leave Kenya until this outcome was certain, and he put himself at considerable risk in the process. It had all the drama of a spy movie, but it was real life and it was scary. And then a second employee was also caught attempting to misappropriate funds from the organization. Santai Kimakeke had been hired by Ruhu and served as a senior staffer in the Nairobi office. He had attempted to extort money from the organization and also forged signatures on checks and bank documents to inappropriately obtain personal loans. As it had with Ruhu, the charity investigated, collected a great deal of evidence, and turned it all over to the Kenyan police, who then charged Kimakeke with fraud, forgery, and related crimes. Through it all, the Kilbergers, the Wee executive leadership team, and the board members remained focused on one thing, ensuring that any stolen funds were recovered so no donor dollars were lost. That mission was accomplished. In the end, all misappropriated funds were returned to the charity. After months of tense board meetings, fears for people's safety and anxiety over the future of the charity's work in Kenya, we all collectively exhale. In its 25-year history, operating around the world with thousands of employees, we had experienced only these two incidents of significant employee malfeasance. In both cases, the charity caught the misconduct, addressed it, and strengthened its controls. From my vantage point as a board member, it was all handled in an exemplary manner, and board members were full of praise for the resilience and commitment of the WE Charity team. But it turned out that we just couldn't catch a break. Rather than going away quietly, Kimakeke saw an opportunity as the controversy around the CSSG grew. In July 2020, he launched a blog called Old Truths About We Charity. This was a place for him to air often bizarre claims against the organization and to raise money. Every page of the site featured a donation button and a plea for people to send him cash. In the opening post, Kimakeke declared that he was innocent of the fraud and extortion charges and had been coerced into making his confession. He then made a series of false accusations about we. For example, he claimed that the charity assets, including title, deeds for two high schools, Baraka Hospital, and We College, had been transferred to a private company belonging to the Kilbergers, putting aside the fact that these institutions provide free humanitarian programs and have no commercial value. The assets were, in fact, owned by We Charity Canada. And his most serious allegation was the already debunked claim that We Charity had kidnapped Ruhu. The blog was live for five days until Kimakeke voluntarily shut it down and said he'd made it all up. Yes, 
all of it. In a later sworn statement, he said he wanted to set the record straight and acknowledged that the claims he'd made were simply not true. Unfortunately, some of the allegations had already been shared on social media, and Kim Akeke had also been in touch with none other than Jesse Brown at Canada Land, asking him to promote the blog. Brown was only too happy to oblige. In fact, he went a step further and posted an article and a podcast episode built around his new friend's claims. Once Kimakeke had recanted, he contacted Brown to clear the record, even posting on Canada Land's Twitter feed that the information he'd published was incorrect. Nevertheless, Canada Land continued to promote the false claims, publishing a second article and podcast episode in October. Things soon started to spiral. In that second article, Jesse Brown included an interview with Nicholas Moyer, then CEO of Cooperation Canada, an umbrella group for nonprofits in international development. As context, Brown wrote that a Canada land investigation had revealed a sprawling tale of money, alleged crime, espionage, and betrayal played out across a network of entities that mirrors the WE organization's corporate structure in Canada. He asserted that a government authority had accused the charity of violating local law and that the brothers were up to their eyeballs in some shady land transfers. If proven true, Moyer was quoted as saying in response, some of the allegations made in this investigation suggest the real potential for the misuse of charitable funds and potential for the violation of either or both Canadian and Kenyan laws. Three days later, Cooperation Canada released a statement calling Canada Land's investigation deeply concerning. As it turned out, Canada Land's allegations were not proven true. In fact, it was Brown's usual mix of inaccurate and inflammatory claims, most of which were clearly addressed in comments the charity had provided to him before publication. Scott Baker told me Moyer later confirmed in a phone call that he took Brown, a journalist, at his word and did not independently verify his reporting or seek additional information from WE Charity or Kenyan government officials. Apparently, fact-checking also did not matter to the Globe and Mail's Africa correspondent, Jeffrey York. Relying heavily on information gleaned from Canada Land, he promptly filed a story alleging the authorities were examining governance and regulatory matters related to WE Charity's activities in Kenya, including assets and officials at the Kenyan affiliate of the charity. He then reported on Cooperation Canada's statement, apparently without speaking to Moyer. In a front-page story headlined, Charity Coalition says it has concerns 
about secrecy at We Charity. A coalition of more than 90 Canadian charities and international development agencies says it is concerned about a pattern of opaque behavior at We Charity, the article began. In a subsequent email to We, Moyer rejected York's characterization, saying that the article attributed to Cooperation Canada a concern that we did not express and that our concern is with respect to the impact of stories involving the WE organizations on sector reputation, and we do not pass judgment on WE's activities. Too little, too late, the die was cast. The story had gone from Kimakeke's completely unfounded and fully retracted allegations of corruption to the relatively obscure Canada Land podcast and post to the front page of the country's most widely read newspaper. Fearing yet another firestorm, the charity opened up its books again and commissioned two independent reviews by experts who'd already looked at the charity's domestic activities and the CSSG affair. The first by forensic accountant Al Rosen involved a detailed examination of the charity's financial and real estate transactions in Kenya. Rosen concluded that he did not locate transactions or examples of where the Kilberger family directly benefited financially from the various we arrangements in Kenya. The second by Matt Torigian, former Ontario Deputy Solicitor General, looked at We Charity's handling of the Ruhu and Kemakeke incidents. In keeping with Canada standards, he wrote, We Charity, and in particular, Mark Kilberger addressed these matters appropriately. They took every reasonable step consistent with expectations in Canada and most developing countries. He went on to say, importantly, the delicate balance of protecting the mission of the charity, the welfare of innocent victims and witnesses, and the integrity of the criminal justice system is an accomplishment not often realized in environments such as Kenya, yet was certainly accomplished in this case. If journalists or politicians in Canada read these reports, they certainly weren't telling. The Five Pillars Before we go any further, it's important to explain how WE's international development model worked. Pretty much every major international charity has its roots in a simple story of people trying to address a specific problem. Oxfam got its start when Britons wanted to get food to starving women and children in enemy-occupied Greece in 1942. CARE was created as a way for Americans to send relief packages to people living in the rubble of post-war Europe. A 12-year-old, Craig Kilberger, wanted to end child labor, and from that came Free the Children. In every case, the philanthropic journey 
revealed that to address the problem at hand, people had to take on the underlying challenges of global poverty. It was a hard lesson for the tweens who had started Free the Children by fundraising for a rescue home for child slaves in India. We learned that many of the freed children were later sold again, Craig explained. Their families couldn't afford to take care of them. We had to work with the families as partners, empowering them, providing alternative income sources and education opportunities for kids, and creating resources for the villages to escape poverty. This led We Charity to devise a development model that was unlike those of many of its peers in the sector. Instead of appealing to donors to support programs that address just one or two specific needs, providing water, for example, or school books, the charity evolved to embrace a holistic community-based approach. This was the foundation for the We Villages model and is the heart of what the organization refers to as its five-pillar approach. We works with an individual community to assess all its needs and then designs interlocking intervention to meet those needs while also respecting the cultural and environmental context. The five pillars are education, water, health, food, and opportunity. Each pillar has three components, infrastructure, operations, and capacity building. Infrastructure includes things like building schoolrooms, drilling boreholes for wells, and establishing medical clinics and hospitals. Operations includes tasks such as ensuring that those schools have teacher training programs. The boreholes have fuel and funds for repairs, and the clinics have medical supplies. Capacity building includes initiatives such as financial literacy courses, water management committees, and health education led by trained community members. The idea is to empower communities by enabling members to carry on their own uplifting. In most cases, the charity could withdraw in five to seven years, having given a community the tools it needed to maintain and build upon the gains made with limited outside intervention. What most impressed me about the We Villages model is the thoughtfulness behind its approach. It was born of trial and error. This was no wide-eyed, self-righteous experiment in international development that could easily backfire. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, the charity's international work became focused on building schools. This was seen as a better way to combat child labor than building rescue homes. Education, after all, is often regarded as the ticket out of poverty. But it quickly became clear that even this was an overly simplistic approach that did not address the barriers to education that exist within a particular community. It turns out that if you build it, 
they still may not come. The organization learned, for example, that while many communities in Kenya do value girls' education, the real barrier to girls attending school is that they are expected to spend their days gathering water from rivers some distance away. So if you want girls to be educated, you need not just school rooms, but also easy access to clean water. You also need health care to make sure children are well enough to go to school. And then you need an economic system to ensure that the community will not be dependent on charitable giving in perpetuity. In other words, you need to identify sources of income so that people can continue to send their kids to school. Ultimately, Wee's approach to sustainable development was to remove or at least lessen the obstacles to education. To support a sustainable model like this, you need money and you need people working together. Here too, We Charities' approach evolved over time. In its earlier years, when the organization's overseas mission was just to build schools, donors often made targeted contributions to build a certain number of schools or school rooms in a particular community. But when the charity moved to its holistic, pillar-based development model more than a decade ago, it also transitioned to a fundraising model that pooled donations to allow it to address everything that was needed for a community to reach self-sustainability. This was never an exact science. Every large project and individual community was different, and community needs changed over time. That is why the organization worked with local leaders to identify infrastructure and programming needs and decide how best to meet them. This ensured that We Charity was not building schoolrooms that would sit empty. As the director of We Villages in East Africa and the former principal of We Charity's Kisaruni High Schools, Carol Mora knows a thing or two about creating education programs. A school is just a box made of bricks until you add students and teachers and education supplies and maintenance staff and community governance and stable funding for all those things, she explained. A school is an ecosystem that only happens through hard work, capacity building, and community mobilization. By 2020, We Charity was active in nine countries, China, Ecuador, Ethiopia, Haiti, India, Kenya, Nicaragua, Sierra Leone, and Tanzania. But Kenya became the laboratory to test new ideas and the flagship of the organization's global development work. It was here that Me to We, the social enterprise, really began establishing cooperatives to create economic opportunities for Maasai women. It was here that the organization began to explore how to take the We Villages model to the next level with advanced infrastructure, such as a hospital with a surgery ward, 
a large-scale agricultural farm, and a college offering free multi-year degrees in business, agriculture, clinical medicine, and more. I can give so many examples of communities that we have partnered with, said Justice Mwinwa, who now heads up We Charity Foundation's projects in Kenya. I've seen young girls who studied in our primary classrooms now applying for teaching positions at Kisaruni. They've gone through Kisaruni High School, then We College, and now they're coming back to teach the next generation. If that is not sustainability, then I don't know what sustainability would be. Sustainability was also a guiding principle when generating funds to fuel community development. The focus was on helping people earn income so the community wouldn't have to rely solely on donations from abroad. Midui Artisans and Midui Trips both created hundreds of jobs in partner communities. The trips also gave donors the opportunity to see exactly how the funding model worked, a central element of WE's thinking. For decades, the organization welcomed Kenyan experts to shape the design of programs, third-party measurement experts to interview local communities and assess impact, and cultural experts like former Assembly of First Nations Chief Sean Atlio. Adlio traveled to Kenya to meet with leaders from the charity's partner communities and advise international staff on how to build cultural protection into development work. Like Rotary International, the organization worked to promote cross-cultural exchange and global citizenship. Amid the CSSG coverage, WE's programs were disparaged by some and have since become the focus of white savorism accusations by certain media outlets. Questions were raised as to whether the organization focused on the appeal of helping the less fortunate without addressing the underlying privilege that allowed benefactors to do so. I read those criticisms with keen interest, both as a board member and as someone who is focused on making sure that my own charitable pursuits do not inadvertently perpetuate oppression. In my view, many of the criticisms leveled at we, including labeling me-to-we trips as volunteerism, are more properly directed at the concept of international development generally. They raise interesting academic questions about whether developed countries are at some level responsible for global poverty and as such whether development efforts only obscure the problem. None of this, however, is unique to we, and efforts to characterize a broad policy debate as a problem with a single organization served only to mislead. Suffice it to say that We Charity was in the development field, and its work ought to be judged and measured on what it accomplished in that space. I believed the charity worked hard to avoid engaging in volunteerism and white saviorism. 
and to forge genuine partnerships. But I didn't want to base that belief solely on slide decks that laid out its sustainable development model and video testimonials from beneficiaries. Seeing is believing. So in July 2018, I visited We Charities projects in Kenya, joined by my then seven-year-old son. This was not my first trip to an impoverished region. As a 19-year-old, I spent a summer traveling across Mexico with 11 others sleeping in a school bus and accepting the hospitality of the underprivileged who opened their doors to us. It was an exercise in what we called immersion living based on the idea that you can't think your way into new ways of living. You must live your way into new ways of thinking. That experience, coupled with extensive travels later in life, made me sensitive to how easy it is to think you're helping when you're really hurting. So, with the skepticism of a lawyer, I arrived in Kenya on high alert for signs of inauthenticity. I found none. During conversations with community members and those who worked for WE, I heard only of partnerships influenced not by the priorities of affluent Westerners, but by what Kenyans wanted and needed to build their own communities. It was clear that visitors were there to learn from community members, not teach them. Outsiders were not even allowed to give gifts, least it upset the equal partnership policy, or take pictures without knowing the individual and asking permission. Protecting the dignity, privacy, and security of community members was of utmost importance, said Robin Wizawadi, head of Kenyan operations and now a director of We Charity Foundation. My son and I met many Kenyans, learned from them, and understood them. Not perfectly, but a little better. In theory, we helped build We College, but in truth, we made a very modest bricks and mortar contribution. What we gained was a sense of proximity and connection, a feeling that nonprofit consultant Noah Manduk captured for me in an interview when he called We the antidote to nationalism. Meanwhile, the donors who accompanied us in Kenya were not passive bystanders. They asked loads of hard questions and wanted details. I still recall Robin rolling out a giant map on the table so the donor group could see every village we supported, track every project in progress, and understand the timeline for both development and the charity's eventual withdrawal. Donors fired off questions, and she answered all of them, even translating Swahili words on maps so there could be no confusion. For this book, and during my tenure as a We Charity board member, I have spoken to hundreds of donors, volunteers, employees, fellow directors, and most importantly, women and children in partner communities. Not once have I heard any suggestion 
that there was something disingenuous or self-serving about the charity's work in Kenya or elsewhere. Not once did anyone tell me that they were confused about how charitable donations were applied to support the five pillars. In the end, of course, only two things ought to matter. The extent of WE's impact and the views of the beneficiaries. Sadly, you will find nothing about either topic in the dozens of articles and television programs that called WE Charities International Work into question. But the numbers speak for themselves. The charity's records show that over the lifetime of the WE Villages program, an estimated 30,000 women achieved economic self-sufficiency through livelihood and entrepreneurship initiatives. More than 200,000 children gained the opportunity to go to school, and more than a million community members got improved access to health care, clean water, or sanitation facilities. The Meet to We Artisans program alone resulted in a 200 to 300 percent increase in the rate of women's income throughout the Maasai Mara region. And behind those numbers are real human beings whose voices were ignored by Canadian journalists and politicians. Voices like that of Esther Kamande, a 15-year-old student at Wee's Kisaruni Girls Boarding School. Without Kisaruni right now, I'd be married and would have some kids and not making the plans I now have because girls never finished school, she said in an interview for this book. With infectious energy and a big smile, she proclaimed, I want to become a neurosurgeon. Esther was joined by her friends and fellow Kisaruni students, Nancy Kalusu and Joy Mueni. Nancy was raised by a single mother who now operates a small farm through assistance from we. She has a small garden and a flock of sheep and 15 cattle, which she didn't have before. Nancy's plans include university and perhaps law school, but she has more immediate ambitions as well. My favorite teacher, my history teacher, I aspire to be like him because he told me when he was in school, he was the best in history. I now want to do even better than him. I know it's ambitious. Not to be outdone, Joy offered that she also wants to become a doctor and hopes to study at Kenyatta University in Nairobi because it's the best university in Kenya. We also changed the life of Mama Evelyn whose story, too, was left untold. Before the pandemic put her daily routine on hold, she worked at the Women's Empowerment Center in the village of Inalerai, the center, a core part of We Charity's Opportunity Pillar, was designed to provide women in the Maasai Mara region with a safe place to pursue income-generating opportunities, participate in training workshops, and develop financial literacy. In 2013, Mama Evelyn became one of the first in her community to create intricate versions of traditional beadwork 
that could be sold abroad. Me2We developed markets in North America through stores such as Holt Renfrew and Indigo for women like Mama Evelyn to sell their products. Six years later, she had become a trainer of other mamas and was also in charge of maintaining the center's quality control. Mama Evelyn was also part of a group called the Village Savings and Loan Association, which provided microfinancing for small businesses in a local and sustainable way. The group's members were trained in financial literacy by WE staff. WE has transformed the lives of mamas, she said. This job has been able to support me as a single mother. I've been able to buy my own land and take my two children to school. I did not believe it was possible. Other Kenyans familiar with the work of WE Charity spoke of the transformative power of its healthcare initiatives, including Baraka Hospital and its many mobile health clinics. Eric Rono is one of them. He works as a supervisor of security guards at WE properties such as Kisaruni, Baraka Hospital, and WE College. Born and raised in Naroke County, Rono sent his three children to WE schools in the village of Inalari. Before WE, people would have to travel many kilometers to reach doctors and roads were bad and we would carry people in a wheelbarrow to a hospital, he explained. Now with we, we have an ambulance and hospital in the community. This has especially helped in terms of maternal health. I found it particularly interesting that all these people also mentioned how much they had benefited from visits from foreign donors and volunteers. There was no suggestion that they had engaged in any performative acts or that benefits accrued solely to the visitors, as some commentators have suggested. I enjoy it when visitors come to school. They teach us new things, new values, and we have a great time. We teach them what we do in our community, our language, and about our culture, Joy explained. Nancy said she enjoyed meeting new people and hearing about their experiences and interactions and appreciated their advice on how to cope with high school education and the university process. And she felt that visitors in turn learned about life here in Kenya, my language, my traditions. Eric Rono lamented, that the absence of visitors to the communities was one of the hardest parts of COVID. And Mama Evelyn echoed the same thought. When they came, she said, we were really happy because we could learn new skills and how to make change in the community. Testimonial, Justice Mwenwa. Justice Mwenwa has worked for We Charity in Kenya since 2010, focused on community development and mobilization. He started as a community coordinator and is now the co-executive director 
of We Charity Foundation, overseeing the ongoing operations of key projects like Baraka Hospital and We College. Every single day I spend with We feels like a kind of miracle. When you see someone whose child was made well because they had access to health care, or a young boy or girl who is excited to go to school each day, it means something. I look around and I see only good things happening in the communities where we has been. In the past two years, that's what has kept me going. I keep going because I have seen the real change in the communities around me. I keep going because I've seen the hope in the eyes of the people who live there. This might be hard for people in Canada and other faraway places to understand, but it means a lot for a community to gain access to clean water. It's actually a matter of life and death. With no access to clean water and limited access to schools, communities cannot thrive. The quality of life in these communities is poor. People struggle to provide just the basics for their families, and there's no strength left to build for the future. It's hard to explain what that really means. We Charity has saved lives and made better lives possible. I don't say that because I read some study or because of what donors might want to hear. I say it as a Kenyan on behalf of Kenyans. Our thoughts and voices matter too. When I think about communities like Terraquet, which was next on the list to receive help from we, but now won't, I think there's no reason for what happened. This organization was taken down. Why? Just because of politics? It isn't right. We had promised these people that we would help, and now we have to tell them that what we promised will not happen. And we have no explanation that makes sense to anyone on the ground. So much has been lost. So many lives that will not be touched. Knowing that young girls and boys have lost an opportunity to access education, knowing that parents have lost an opportunity to learn new skills or start new businesses. It's a big deal. It's been hard to wrap my head around how the media managed to get away with critiquing We Charity's work in Kenya without, for the most part, talking to Kenyans impacted by that work. Yet, that's just what happened. The CBC's Fifth Estate, for example, traveled all the way to Africa, ostensibly to get to the bottom of things, and still managed to air an hour-long show that included the views of no Kenyan beneficiaries of WE programming. It seemed the height of irony, as nothing screams colonialism more than forming judgments about developing nations without talking to those who live there 
and acknowledging their perspectives. There is a lot of talk condemning white saviorism these days, Carol Moran noted. As a proud Kenyan woman, it is not lost on me that the conversationalists on the topic are often from North America and frankly are often white. Critics are ignoring the reality that We Charity Kenya isn't a bunch of white people in Canada, but is instead a Kenyan-registered non-governmental organization operated by a team comprised of 98% Kenyans. All this context is needed to understand just how misinformed reporting by outlets such as Bloomberg and the CBC was, and the extent to which key voices always seem to be left on the cutting room floor. Of Canings and Kitchens In August 2020, Natalie Obiko Pearson, a reporter from Bloomberg, Canada, emailed We Charity asking for information about the organization's international development projects. No issue at first. Someone from WE's media relations team replied that they would be happy to assist, but needed more details. What specifically was Obiko Pearson interested in knowing? What would be the focus of the article? What was the deadline? They got no response. The team followed up in September when they got word that Obiko Pearson had been contacting supporters of the organization. This time, she replied two days later. We'll be in touch as soon as our reporting warrants it, she wrote, with plenty of time for you to respond to any questions we may have before publication. Things went silent for months, and then late on a Friday afternoon in mid-December, another email arrived. The article Obiko Pearson explained would cover the 25-year rise of Craig and Mark Kilberger, how they built a unique, charitable, for-profit organization whose influence stretched across the world and the sudden demise of We Charity amid a Canadian political controversy. Her email included dozens of detailed questions covering everything from We Real Estate Holdings in Kenya to allegations of corporal punishment at the Kisaruni Girls Boarding High School. Queries about very serious allegations often begin with the vague preface, some have criticized, and then invited reaction. This is a tactic often described as spaghetti journalism. Throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. The charity was given five business days to respond. Apparently, Obiko Pearson's version of plenty of time. The Bloomberg questions were loaded with inaccurate information, including claims that boarding students were not allowed to go home on school holidays if paying guests were visiting and that donor plaques were so frequently switched that staff joked they should be made of Velcro. 
We Charity answered the questions as fully as possible, corrected the inaccuracies, and provided hundreds of pages of supporting documentation. The organization also offered to arrange interviews with the head of its Kenyan programs, other senior staff, and local community members, and urged the reporter to set up her own interviews with Kenyan government officials who could provide her with accurate firsthand information. All these offers were rebuffed. On December 29th, Bloomberg Businessweek published how a charity superstar innovated its way to political scandal. A 6,200-word feature article that heaped scorn on everything the charity had ever done, from school programming to engagement with celebrities and corporations to the relationship with me to we. It noted in an almost dismissive manner that the organization had provided a 71-page reply to questions with 400 pages of supporting material, as though the information overload made the content less worthy of careful consideration. Without sober reflection, it replayed all the debunked myths perpetuated by the likes of Kate Bayon, Jesse Brown, and the opposition politicians who had attacked the CSSG process. And to my mind, it denigrated the efforts and accomplishments of generations of students, educators, and staff members. But the harshest criticisms were leveled at Wee's international work. The story said, for example, that the organization had slowed and duplicated construction work on major projects to ensure a steady supply of feel-good tasks for donor groups. I found this to be a head-scratcher because there is sadly no shortage of poverty for donor groups to address. We Charity operated in countries with thousands of communities in need of assistance. New projects began all the time, and there was no need to slow anything down or manufacture opportunities to pitch in. The article also claimed that after partnering with Chip Wilson's Imagine One Day charity in Ethiopia, we had effectively sabotaged its work by cutting staff and funding. In fact, Wilson had praised the partnership in an article he published in McLean's magazine just a month earlier. We appreciated their forward-looking perspective, he wrote, of We Charity. They helped communities build and operate businesses of their own, setting them up for success without foreign aid. And in an interview for this book, he said he had no regrets about the merger and still supported the organization and its mission. We did our due diligence. We saw firsthand the work they were doing. Our family's collective experiences made it more than apparent that we was a first-rate operation. Some of the allegations raised by the Bloomberg reporters were downright absurd. The article recounted one colorful story 
about a kitchen that Craig allegedly insisted be jury-rigged the night before a major donor was to arrive to open the Women's Empowerment Center. The donor, the article claimed, expected a kitchen and one had to be created out of thin air. Mayhem ensued, according to Bloomberg. Employees were instructed to cobble together a makeshift kitchen with equipment from a nearby high school. Photographs of the result show pots and pans hanging neatly on the wall and tidy shelves stacked with cups and plates. When the donors left, it all went back to the school. But I looked into the situation, and it turns out the supposedly fake kitchen was very real, built over months with chiseled stone walls, cement floors, and piped water. After talking to Craig, Carol, and others on the ground on Kenya, I learned that Craig had simply suggested the kitchen be better decorated in advance of a ceremony to open the center. I also confirmed that the donor in question had seen the kitchen before and after decorations were added, understood that Bloomberg's allegations were inaccurate, and continued to work with the charity long after the article was published. The most troubling assertion in the article, though, was that We Charity allowed corporal punishment, specifically caning, to take place at Kisaruni Girls Boarding High School and other schools that operated in the country. A student named Bernice Koschel claimed she was thrashed for not doing well enough on exams. Two others who Bloomberg said had asked not to be named for fear of retribution alleged they were caned on the back, the legs, the buttocks, the hands. One of the three said her whole class was caned after some students were caught using a phone to study for the exams. These accusations were a bolt from the blue. I know my heart sank. If this were true, my tenure as a We Charity director was over. I wanted no part in an organization that condoned such practices. In the moment, and again in writing this book, I've asked hard questions of Robin, Carol, Mark, Craig, Dalal, and everyone in between to assess whether there's any merit to the allegations. And I'm satisfied there's not. So where did this incendiary claim come from? I was horrified, said Carol, who was responsible for We Charity Schools in Kenya. Bloomberg wrote only generalities in their initial questions. So we were only able to say that we had never heard of any such incidents and that corporal punishment was forbidden in We Schools where teachers are trained in non-physical discipline. But once the article had been published, she explained the details helped with a full investigation. Carol spoke to school principals, teachers, students, government officials, and local elders to make sure no such thing 
had occurred or could occur. She had a representative of Kisaruni try to reach Branis Koshal directly to find out what had happened, but Koshal declined to speak about the matter. Carol then managed to track down former students who had attended the school in 2015 when, according to Bloomberg, that entire class was caned as well as some classmates of Koshal's. The students all denied the allegations and provided written statements to this effect so that we, Charity, could be confident that nothing improper was happening under its watch. Carol also reached out to Mary Milo, then principal of Kisaruni's main campus, and discovered that she had a very concerning story to tell. In early January 2021, Milo said she was contacted by a former Kisaruni teacher named Jeffrey Kakinye Wambua. He told Milo that he'd received a phone call from a man named David, who identified himself as a journalist. This was Bloomberg's Kenyan correspondent, David Herbling. David said he'd been given Kakinye's name and contact information by Bernice Koshal. He asked if Kakinye had ever seen corporal punishment used during his time at Kisaruni. Kakinye said that he had not. After the call, he reached out to Koshal to ask who had started the caning rumors. The journalist, she replied. Kakinye asked, why? And Koshal responded, I don't really know. To make sure Milo had things straight, Justice Umwenwa also reached out to Kakinye and confirmed it all, including that Kakinye himself had never witnessed any form of corporal punishment at We Charity Schools. Soon, other students came forward to say that they'd been approached by the same reporter and that he tried to coax them into saying there was corporal punishment at Kisaruni. One young woman, I will call her Anne, said that a journalist named David had called her cousin in mid-January and offered her money. David then called Anne and asserted that an entire class had been caned during examinations in 2015 because some students had phones. Anne told him that she had heard of no such incident. The reporter continued to push, which kind of cane did teachers use in school, he asked. Do they use a pipe or a branch to beat you? If you make a mistake at school, do they chase you home? Anne kept insisting she had never been beaten, and David kept refusing to back down. The conversation wrapped up with the Bloomberg journalist offering Anne money to take a phone to school and put him in contact with other students. To get rid of him, she relented and provided the phone number of a friend. I'll call her Jane. On January 14th, David Herbling phoned Jane, but she didn't pick up because she was in class. At lunchtime, she met with Carol Marat, to explain the situation 
and together they tried to call David back. He eventually phoned again, while the two women were still together. Jane put the call on speakerphone, and Carol recorded the conversation using her own phone. I reviewed an English transcription of the recording. The conversation was primarily in Swahili. It was very brief. The journalist initially refused to identify himself and then gave only his first name, David from Bloomberg. Immediately, he pressed Jane with a blunt leading question. Which punishment incident do you remember? When she said, there was no punishment in Kisaruni, the reporter abruptly hung up. This story is alarming for many reasons, not least because the reporter seemed to pressure students into saying what he wanted them to and because of the allegations that he offered them money. Also concerning is that when he got answers that didn't line up with the story he wanted to tell, he simply hung up rather than making those answers part of his reporting. Although the published article does include a statement from Carol Marat denying the caning allegations, it gives no room to the many students who also refuted those claims. But the most troubling thing, in my view, is that all these interactions took place in January, which is after the Bloomberg article had already been published. Despite having printed serious allegations, the reporters appeared to be checking their claims or seeking corroboration after the fact. Even after We Charity's lawyers submitted a letter to Bloomberg detailing all of Herbling's conduct with written statements from multiple students who denied ever being caned, there were no retractions and the story remains in the public space. The Reed Cowan Episode As it turned out, the Bloomberg article set off perhaps the most disturbing turn in Wee's parade of horribles, the claim that the organization frequently switched out donor plaques caught the eye of a Las Vegas news anchor named Reed Cowan and unleashed a furor. I don't use the word disturbing lightly. Cowan's allegations were troubling and painful to hear and left me feeling numb. His subsequent behavior, however, was awful and left me enraged, and it has been covered by absolutely no one in the Canadian public space until now. In 2006, Reed Cowan lost a young son, Wesley, in a tragic accident. After seeing Craig on The Oprah Winfrey Show, he was inspired to raise money for We Charity to support the construction of schoolhouses in Kenya. Cowan contributed roughly $20,000 himself, and his friends and family contributed another $50,000. These generous donations helped support four schoolrooms. Two of those had plaques honoring Wesley. The plaques were not something that Cowan paid for, 
or even request it. They were presented to him by the charity as a gesture of thanks. When Natalie Obiko Pearson was researching the Bloomberg Businessweek article, she asked about this rumor that donor recognition plaques were frequently switched. The WE Media Relations team told her that no such thing had ever happened. But it later became apparent that two plaques mounted almost 15 years ago, one for Cowan and the second for another donor to the same village, had indeed been removed. Contrary to what was reported in the Bloomberg article, though, plaque switching was not a common occurrence. A month-long investigation by a third party identified only these two occurrences. In fact, the practice of placing plaques on primary schools had largely ceased a decade ago at the request of the community's the school served. As a result, the concept of switching plaques to allow more donors to be recognized made little sense since there were hundreds of buildings with no plaques on them. Also, as noted, We Charity had long ago moved away from a model that tied specific donations to particular pieces of infrastructure in favor of its pillar-based approach. What happened with Cowan's plaque was that a large foundation wanted to take over sponsorship of the entire school campus and expand it because the surrounding community had grown. The charity reached out to donor groups that had sponsored individual buildings. One of those groups, for example, was Oprah's Angel Network and got their permission to take over the buildings and replace their plaques. But somehow, Reed Cowan was overlooked, and a plaque dedicated to his son was replaced without his knowledge or consent. Cowan presumably realized this when, after reading the Bloomberg piece, he did some research and found that the plaque placed on the schoolroom dedicated to Wesley had been removed and the room now bore a different name. Cowan was understandably devastated, and he contacted the charity and exchanged several emails and phone calls with Craig, who apologized profusely for the error. I called him to apologize because I was horrified when I found out what had happened with the plaque, Craig explained. We wanted to do our best to make things right for him. The organization found a photo of the original plaque and made a replica that was restored to the schoolroom. A board member also reached out, as did Robin Wizawadi, who had met Cowan on his trips to Kenya. But these entreaties were not well received. The removal of Cowan's plaque was a terrible mistake that never should have happened. It is important, however, to put the mistake in context, any business or charity that has operated for 25 years is bound to have some dissatisfied customers or donors. Mistakes happen, even at the most reputable places. When they do, the appropriate thing to do is to apologize, own it, and try to make things right. If that doesn't work, 
In a worst-case scenario, an incident might lead to a lawsuit. It was unthinkable, however, that an issue relating to a charity's recognition of a particular donor 15 years ago would land atop the agenda of a parliamentary ethics committee. Yet, that is precisely what happened here. Although Cowan later said that as a journalist himself, he had not wanted to participate in the process of selling papers or helping bloggers get web clicks for outlets or boosting ratings on the back of my beautiful son, he apparently began to reach out to reporters on social media, or so I'm told, as all of the content has since been deleted. Unsurprisingly, this caught the attention of opposition politicians, and just like that, Cowan was booked to appear before the ETHI committee on February 26, 2021. A star witness ready to tell a story. I'm here today to speak for and on behalf of this little guy right here. This is Wesley Cowan, he said in his opening statement to the committee, tearfully holding a photo of his son. It was heartbreaking and moving, and in that moment, I admit to feeling a sense of shame as a board member. But things got shameful in ways I could never have imagined. Until this public appearance, the only issue Cowan had raised with the charity was the removal of the plaque. But now, goaded on by certain MPs, he went much further. He told the members, I believe I'm connected to what I presume are millions of dollars raised for the charity, and then insinuated that we had possibly misused donations and failed to deliver on projects. When asked by Charlie Angus whether he could verify if all the schools he had funded had actually been built, Reed replied, I can't. And when Angus suggested that We Charity might have a pattern of deceiving donors, Cowan agreed that perhaps there was a pattern of duplicitous relations with donors and then declared, I feel as though my son has been the victim of fraud. I was shell-shocked. Somehow the charity had gone from being blamed for an era with a gifted plaque on a schoolroom in Kenya to being publicly accused of defrauding donors, all without a shred of evidence. Cowan himself never alleged that his donation did not fulfill its purpose of supporting schools. As for the millions of dollars Cowan took credit for, as opposed to the $70,000 he and his friends and family had actually contributed. He later confirmed that he was referring to sums he assumed had been raised over the years by Spencer West, a motivational speaker who was a paid employee of We Charity and had been introduced to the organization by Cowan. Following his testimony, Cowan took to Twitter, releasing a series of videos full of increasingly bizarre statements. He again claimed responsibility for millions of dollars in donations to WE, 
seemingly in an attempt to inflate the significance of both his generosity and his grievance. He then demanded the Kilbergers resign, release all employees from any confidentiality agreements, and disclose confidential donor records. And although he had offered no evidence to support his claims of fraud, indeed, they were demonstrably false. He called for the CRA and the IRS to investigate the charity. The allegations of double dealing and the pleas for the tax authorities to get involved were duly picked up and extensively repeated by Canadian newspapers. Horrifying stories of We Charity's alleged plaque swapping and other dubious practices have prompted calls for investigations by the RCMP, the Canada Revenue Agency, and the U.S. Internal Revenue Service, declared a national post piece. Under the headline, Donor Asks IRS to Open Fraud Investigation into We Charity, Bloomberg provided a summary of events that was grossly misleading. Group admitted removing plaque honoring donors' dead chow, read the first bullet point. Canadian Parliament already probing group's work in Kenya, said the second. BNN Bloomberg followed up a few days later with an article co-authored by David Herberling, the Kenyan reporter, accused of offering money to students, alleging that We Charity had left behind a trail of enraged, grieving donors. But of course, there was no such trail. Other than Cowan, whose experience was understandably painful, there remains no evidence of widespread concern among donors. Opposition MPs were only too happy to join the fray once again, casting the Kilbergers as villains. As you may recall from the previous chapter, Charlie Angus, for one, seized on Cowan's call for an official investigation and sent letters to the RCMP and the CRA, formally demanding investigations of the charity. Meanwhile, Cowan seemed to be sinking under the weight of his decision to throw himself into the middle of a political firestorm. In a series of emails to Robin Wizawadi on March 4th, he pleaded with the organization not to use its narrative shapers to downplay his involvement in raising funds for the charity, lamented that having to testify thrust me into something larger than I expected, said he wished her and Craig no harm as human beings and professed to be seeking help for a near nervous breakdown. Robin tried to provide comfort by assuring him that the board was looking into donor transparency issues as a result of his experience and by confirming that his contributions had benefited the many children who were educated over 15 years in the schoolhouses he'd supported. It was to no avail. In late March, We Charity received a demand letter 
from Callan's legal counsel. When I read it, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. He and his lawyers insisted that the organization pay him a staggering sum, $20 million in damages, and another $20 million if Wesley's name wasn't immediately removed from all we buildings, plus $250,000 to repay Cowan and others for donations, and another $150,000 to reimburse his travel to Africa. It was nearly 2,000 times the amount he had personally donated to We Charity in all the years he was involved with the organization. According to the demand letter, a portion of the money, $250,000, would go to Cowan's New Reed Cowan Philanthropy Fund. The $20 million in damages would be for his personal benefit, although he could choose to share it with his fund if he wished. And here's the kicker. If We Charity paid up, Cowan agreed to remove all his social media posts and decline additional press interviews. In other words, the organization could buy his silence. If the demands were not met or his letter was made public, however, Cowan said he would use his media connections to expose the charity to additional heights of public infamy. To back up his threat, he listed his current and previous media employers, which included affiliates of Fox and the Sinclair Broadcast Group. The evening the charity received his letter, the New York Post, which was one of the outlets Cowan said he could use to punish the organization if it failed to meet his demands, reached out about a potential story. The Post had never reported on We Charity before. There was much hand-wringing within We as to how to handle the already delicate situation. Paying was, of course, a non-starter. But people debated whether to make the letter public. I voiced my strong view that the letter had to be made public. A journalist was demanding an astronomical sum of money in exchange for silence and threatening to make a public spectacle of the charity if he was not paid off. In the end, everyone agreed. When we told the Post about Cowan's demand for millions of dollars, the paper dropped its story. Meanwhile, the organization's counsel responded to Cohen's lawyers, calling out the letter for what it was, attempted extortion. We are attorneys. We understand the hard-nosed tactics that are part of U.S. litigation, wrote Joseph Kretsch. But you've demanded that a children's charity bankrupt itself to pay your client tens of millions of dollars he does not claim to have lost. You have backed that demand by threatening to report our client to law enforcement if we charity does not pay. You've threatened to escalate a public relations assault against we charity, including through your client's own media employer. 
Of course, Cowan never launched his threatened media assault. He never made any legal claim, and his lawyers never responded to Kretsch's letter. Instead, Cowan went silent, and to my knowledge, never made any further public statement on the matter. Meanwhile, the Washington Post advised We Charity that it planned to write about Cowan's story, and the organization decided to give the paper a copy of Cowan's demand letter and the response from Kretsch. So Cowan got his story, but it was probably not the one he was hoping for. In his April 2, 2021 column, the Post media critic, Eric Wimple wrote, The case underscores the importance of journalists maintaining a bulwark between their professional pursuits and their private crusades. Members of the media should be mighty careful about ever whipping out scary language about public infamy, given their role in facilitating such an outcome. A news story in Cowan's hometown paper, the Las Vegas Review-Journal, quoted Mary Hush, a former managing editor and professor of media ethics, as saying the case cruises some ethical lines and is in breach of professional standards, which require journalists to avoid conflicts of interest, real or perceived. North of the border? a deafening silence. Having amplified Cowan's allegations of fraud and donor deception through numerous articles and front-page headlines, the Canadian media now had nothing to say about the attempted extortion. It was not for a lack of newsworthiness. Members of Parliament had provided Cowan with a national forum to make incendiary allegations about a charity. And Cowan then privately threatened to bankrupt that charity. Yet not a single outlet reported on the $20 million demand or explained to Canadians that his fraud accusations and his claims of having raised millions for the charity were entirely false. What I found mind-boggling, said Robin, was that not one single reporter bothered to ask Carol or me or anyone here in Kenya the status of the schools that Reed helped fund. I could have told them the schools are still there accomplishing the goal he intended. They're filled with students and teachers every day for the past 15 years. Students are getting an education, vaccinations, access to clean water, and school gardens for lunches. When U.S. newspapers began reporting negatively on Cowan's demands, he deleted all his social media posts about We Charity and refused to speak publicly on the matter. But he did reach out privately to the organization once again, this time to express regret for all that had transpired in an email filled with agony, introspection, 
and a request to call off the U.S. media attack dogs. I'm sorry for all pain on all sides, Cowan wrote to Mark and Craig on April 11th. He said he wished he could go back and told the brothers he did not wish you both or anyone in your family harm. Most startlingly, he said, I regret to the depths of my attorney's words in the demand letter, which he insisted doesn't speak for my intentions that I've held all along. This disavowal and mea culpa, like almost anything else in the We Charity scandal, came too late, and the genie would not fit back in the bottle. I cannot claim to understand the pain Cowan felt when he learned the plaque bearing his son's name had been removed. That he had a right to be angry is beyond dispute. But to then spin that into unfounded allegations of fraud and an attempt to enrich himself is inexcusable. Whatever the plaque said, the school built in Wesley's memory was still there, as Robin noted, creating a brighter future for students. Meanwhile, because the Canadian media never reported the extortion attempt, in the public eye, Cowan remained a grief-stricken father whose trust was betrayed rather than someone whose broader agenda smacks of opportunism. And to this day, no politicians or journalists have owned up to, let alone apologized for, their misplaced reliance on Cowan's allegations. Still, I presume that going forward, no Canadian journalist would have the temerity to continue to use Cowan as a source for anything relating to we. How wrong I was. Thank you for listening. You can download more episodes of What We Lost wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about Tafik Rangwala's national bestseller or to buy the book, visit whatwelost.com and discover the real story behind the CSSG controversy.